All right, it's exciting for me to be here January 2nd. Uh, January 2nd is kind of an awkward day. You know, you, we have this crescendo in our culture of we start with Halloween and, you know, there's excitement. And then, then comes Thanksgiving. We're on vacation. Things are well. We're, we're meeting with our families. And then comes Christmas and it's getting even better. And then after Christmas, we have some time off. You know, we're enjoying just eating a lot of food and, and thinking about how great the year's been. And then New Year's Eve, we get fireworks. We, we have this great time. And then New Year's Day, we have parades. We have the Rose Bowl. It's, it's a great time. And then comes January 2nd. And, and here we are. And tomorrow we start work and we start school. And it's a great, great day. It is. Hey, I, I like this. I like this. But for me, it's exciting because I get to share with you the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is not at the bottom. It's not a January 2nd. The hope of the gospel is a December 31st. We are looking forward to what is ahead. There is great, great joy in that. So as a preacher, it's exciting to be here. Um, New Year's, it's, it's kind of this weird, weird time. You know, after, after Christmas and during that whole time, we kind of put off um, normal behavior like exercising and eating right till, till later on when we can kind of start fresh and, and get our lives back on track. So it's, it's kind of this weird time. And, and we make these things called New Year's resolutions or, or promises that we're going to do to ourselves. Has anyone made a resolution this year? I'm not going to ask you what it is, but is anyone in here? Wow, I guess that's kind of outdated. All right, not a lot of New Year's <laughs> resolutions. I've made a few for myself, um, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. I will say this, though. Most of you must have figured this out because they say that 85% of New Year's resolutions fail. They, they don't make it all the way through the end. However, they also say that if you start at the beginning and you have in mind a plan, then they say that you are 10 times more likely to succeed in your goal than if you didn't make it in the first place. So let that be an encouragement. If you're thinking about doing it, go ahead. Make some goals. Now is a good time. Um, let's pray, and then we will get into the Word. Lord, I thank you that you are holy, that, we, that you love us so much that you've given us Jesus. Lord, that we have hope in the gospel that does not fail us, that never will fail us, and that we have you as our treasure. Lord, I pray that this morning as we get into your word, that we don't get lost in, in the language, but that we can grab on to the solid truth of your love and what you've done for us. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrificial love for us, for saving us, for rescuing us. Give us life this morning. Give us hope for an eternal glory with you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles. Those of you who brought them, not a lot of you. All right. Bibles. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. For those of you who are not a frequent visitor to the book of Romans, I would encourage you to start doing so. Romans is a wonderful book. One of my favorite books. A couple years ago, I was a part of a church plant, and, and we started through Romans. And Romans is so thick that it literally took probably three years' worth of preaching to get through most of it. it, it there's a lot to it. It's a very theological book. It's a weighty book. There's a lot of important truths in there that, as Christians, we need to grapple with, and we need to understand and, and get a hold of. 
So as you're starting this new year, if you're wanting a book that very clearly and articulately explains Christian theology, then I would recommend the book of Romans to you. Go ahead and start that. Book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul the author, the human author, starts out. In verses 16 and 17, he says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul gives us a quick, quick definition of the term gospel. We know that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, and Paul tells us here that the gospel is God's righteousness and his plan of salvation, his salvation plan. So that's the definition I'm going to give you for now. It is the work of Jesus on the cross, it's the good news of him, and it is God's plan of righteousness. And as we get to the end of our message, I'm going to really unpack what the term gospel means, and it will give us a greater significance for our hope in the gospel. Later on, Paul moves on, and at the end of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 3, Paul explains how the Jews and the Gentiles and all people are unrighteous. We are deserving of death. He quotes Psalms 14, and he says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Later on in chapter 3, 23, he says, All have sinned. Every person, you and I, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible stakes its claim very, very clearly that each person is unrighteous. And all of us have sinned. And it doesn't take long to figure this out. Right? Anyone who has kids, you, you find this out at a very young age. Last week, we were having Christmas with my family. And uh, I gave my nephew an awesome present. I give him this present. It's all wrapped up. He rips it open. He's so excited. And he pulls out this sweet San Francisco Giants shirt. And he is six. And he loves the Giants. And he was so excited. Yes, I love this. This is great. And he takes off his old shirt right there and, and throws his new one on. He's ready to go. And then comes the next present. It's in a bag. And kids don't like the bags. There's, there's nothing to open you know, you can kind of peek in there. That's the only good thing is before, you know, Christmas, you can peek in there. He takes out the tissue paper. He puts his hand in and grabs this box of crayons. And he kind of looks at it. And my wife's like, yay! She's an artist. She loves that type of thing. And he's a six-year-old boy. And he puts it back in and he says, next! <laughs> another, another relative of mine, young kid, says, well, I guess I'm the loser this year. I got the least amount of presents. Right? And we, and we see at a very young age that all of us, all of us are sinners. That no one is perfect. That we are all in need of some help. Later in chapter 8, Paul says that our minds are hostile to God. That they cannot submit to His law. We can't do it. Our minds on our own are far away from Him. They are far away from His righteousness. Now, if you think about it, in our Bibles, there are 1,198 chapters. And out of 1,198 chapters, there are two where humanity is living according to God's Word. 
This is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then come Genesis 3, we have story after story after story of our inability to love God and do what he has commanded us to do. Two chapters out of our entire Bible. So in the court case of Romans, chapters 1 through 3 are Paul's opening arguments. They are this, that humanity is sinful, that God is perfect, and unfortunately, because we are sinful, punishment has to be made. So for those of you coming in, kind of getting a little depressed, all right, here I am, we're all sinful, okay, we know this. Some of us don't think we are, but the Bible tells us clearly, you're all sinful, Right? But there's some good news because at the end of chapter 3 and through all of chapter 4, Paul, in Paul we see a dramatic shift from our unrighteousness to God's righteousness. It shifts from our failure to his beauty and his righteousness. So that's where we're going to begin today our verses from chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So go ahead and turn your Bibles into there. I'm going to be reading those five verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Instantly, this passage starts out with some great, great news. This is some fantastic news. Actually, it's probably the best news that you and I could ever hear. It says that we've been justified now. Remember, first couple chapters, we're in trouble. We're not right. But now, we are made right. We've been, by faith, justified. I want to try to unpack this, because understanding what Paul is saying here is the root of our hope. It's the root of our joy and where we are going. So I want to try to do this by looking at two words to start off with. One, the word therefore, and two, the word justified. So the first word, therefore. You know, in, in early Bible college, one of my first classes, there's this old guy, and, and every time you see therefore, he always says, well, why is therefore therefore? you you, you got to know that. you got to know why it is therefore. Yes, corny, I know. Here we go. It's there because the entire previous chapter, chapter 4, is devoted to Abraham and how Abraham is saved. Chapter 4, verse 3, says Abraham believed God. Believed him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, chapter 4 unequivocally explains how Abraham was saved by his faith in God rather than by his actions. Hence the word therefore, depicting a parallel between our salvation and Abraham's salvation. And two, the word justified. What does the word justified mean? It means to, to be righteous or to have a right standing. So we're told that we are justified now. Well, in order to get justified, to have a right standing, this means that at one point, we didn't have a right standing, or we weren't justified. 
because now we are. So before we were not. Well, when was that? When were we not justified? We weren't justified before we had belief in God, before we had belief in Jesus. So before we believed in Jesus' work on the cross, we were not made right. We were not uh, justified. In fact, we were the opposite. We were the opposite. All of us sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. Let me give you an example of what's happening here. All of us are guilty. One through three, it's very clear. But then comes Jesus, chapter four or five. We are justified. God is a just God. We know this. He is a righteous God. And because this is true, there are certain things about him that he must always do. He must always follow because he is that way. If you were to catch a criminal, let's say, let's say there's a criminal cruising around in Corvallis and the cops catch him and he's put on trial, right? And the trial shows that this guy is guilty. What must the judge do in order to give a fitting punishment? Can he just excuse him? Just say, okay, whatever, I forgive you, you're free to go, you can keep doing whatever you want. No, that can't happen. In order for the judge to be righteous, a fitting punishment must be given. It has to be. And subsequently, this is where we stood. Convicted, guilty, a fitting punishment must be given to you and I. A lot of excitement right now. All of us, this is where we stood, every one of us, convicted, guilty, but good news. Good news. Verse 1, we have now been justified. Well, how did this happen? Right? How did all of a sudden we get justified? Like I said, it's by faith. So when that gavel came down, guilty, the judge does the unthinkable. The judge takes off his robe. He puts on a crown of thorns. He carries the cross and he takes our punishment for us. Jesus Christ made our sin his obligation. He took the weight of our sin and because of him, we have hope. This verse tells us that if we have faith in Christ who paid the price, then we can now have peace. See, Christ did the unimaginable here. He did the unimaginable. Remember, the, the judge took our spot. He gave his son to be killed instead. And some of us, some of us, we don't like this idea. We don't like the idea of other people doing things for us. We want to do things ourselves. Right? It's popular in our, in our culture. We want to be the king of our own throne. Right? And as the, the guilty offender, oftentimes we yell at God and we say, God, how dare you only give me this one option? How dare you give me your son and say, I have to believe in him? That's oftentimes our attitudes. And in feeling this way and in saying these things, this is how we reject Christ in our culture. How blind and how arrogant we are many times. We want, we want to do things our own way. And regrettably, in spite of what happened, many of us, we want to turn verse 1 into, therefore, I've been justified by my own actions. Right? I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm a good grandpa. I'm a good father. Um, I come to church occasionally. I give a little money to Uganda. Things are all right. God must like me. I'm doing pretty good. I, I haven't killed anyone lately. Things are okay. Right? We want to be our own saviors. 
But the Bible is very clear. There's nothing that we can do. Our actions cannot earn us peace. We are sinful, fallen human beings. And then on the other hand, there are those of us who think, God wouldn't like me. Why would he do that for me? You know, I'm, I'm not that big of a deal. I'm, I'm not important. I'm, I'm kind of a nobody. You know, I, I don't really fit in anywhere. I'm kind of awkward. You know, my, my life's a mess, right? I, I'm financially a wreck. I, I just, I don't fit in anywhere. God, why would you do this for me? I, I'm not a good wife. Maybe my, my parents are embarrassed of me. God, God wouldn't want me. But see, the beautiful thing is, this verse gives hope to everyone. Because it says it's not about you, it's about him. This is why in the Bible, the King Davids, the murderers, this is why the prideful, the arrogant, the people with very low, low self-esteem, this is why we can have hope. This is all of us. This is all of you who are maliciously critiquing my sermon right now. There's, I always get laughs on that, the first service I did, and that only means that it's funny because it's true. <laughs> There's hope for everyone. Jesus has paid the price, and we have peace knowing that our lives aren't perfect, and that I may be a disaster, but guess what? That's okay, because even though I'm a joke, Jesus paid the price, and I am forgiven. So off the bat, we have some incredible news. It's not about me, it's about him. And that is good news. We move to verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, it's by faith that we obtain access. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, what is this hope that Paul is talking about? Um, Christian hope, biblical hope, is very different than our common usage of the word hope. They're kind of at odds with one another. See, Christian hope is not wishfully thinking that next week the ducks will suffer a demoralizing defeat. <laughs> right? That is not Christian hope. Christian hope isn't getting your paycheck and going to Spirit Mountain and hoping that you're going to win the jackpot. Right? That is not what the Bible tells us what hope is. Instead, hope is this. It is a full assurance and a confident expectation of good things to come. And we get this from Hebrews 6, where he says, Show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So you know what's coming. It's a beautiful thing. See, hope and faith work hand in hand to the Christian. Because by faith, we look back to what Jesus did on the cross and we believe in him. And by hope, we look forward to an eternity with him. Hand in hand, hope and faith. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have faith in Jesus while trying to go forward, only looking backwards. Right? It's a bad idea. Fix your eyes on, on hope, on the cross, on what's coming, on our eternity with him. When I was in high school, when I just started learning how to drive, we played this game. And the game is called, put your friend's car into neutral while they're trying to drive. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. If you're, trying, if you're learning how to drive, don't do this. So what would happen is if you come up to a stop sign, and you're driving, and, and you're ready to go, your friend would try to just accidentally, or purposely, without you knowing, pop it into neutral. So then while it turns green, you're ready to go, you hit the gas, and you don't go anywhere. And this game was fun for a while, and, and, but it started getting a little bit more aggressive, 
a little bit more aggressive. And it went from like slyly trying to bump it into neutral to like, I don't care if you see this, it's going into neutral. And then even worse, what would happen is after neutral, what's the next thing that comes? Yeah, you'd hit the reverse sometimes on accident. And that was really bad because you'd think you'd be going forward, but you'd actually be going backwards. Tragedy is bound to happen. And oftentimes, this is what I think of when I think of hope and faith, because sometimes we don't really have our hope in heaven. We don't have our hope in Jesus now, here in my life. We believe, we believe in what he did for me, but sometimes we're, we're very comfortable with where we're at. You know, life is good here in Corvallis. There's not a lot of oppression. I, I doubt that many of you are starving in here. Things are going well for most of us, for the most part. Right? So we're comfortable. But the gospel says, have your hope in heaven, because it gets much, much better than this. Know him. Fix your eyes on where you're going. Christian hope is putting your faith into something that you know that God has promised will happen. So our hope, our confident expectation from verse 2 is in the glory of God. And what is this? What is the glory of God here that Paul is talking about? He's talking about our glorified bodies, our perfection on the last day, our being with God, God in us as our treasure. And when you know this, when you hold on to this truth, you know that you are going to be with him. And your life is, is overflowing with joy. And you have peace and you're happy because you know where you're going. See, the more we understand where we came from, the more you understand that, that you really were separated from God. All of us, you really were over here. But now we're over here. The more you understand this, the more you recognize how wonderful of a God we serve. The more you understand the height from which we had fallen, the more and the greater we can worship him. A couple months ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who, who loves YouTube videos. He's always, you know, forwarding me, hey, check out this video. So he, he sends me this video, and it's of a, of a skydiver. Anyone ever here been skydiving? A couple of you, all right. It's, it's pretty fun. This video shows this guy jumping out of a plane. The guy's free-falling for a long time, about 60 seconds, and he pulls his ripcord, and, and the parachute has some malfunctions. And the guy starts spinning. He's spinning, and, and the ground is coming fast, and you see all this happening, and then just, I mean, it's coming. You, you know, death is coming. You, you, cannot, you can't hide that, and just smack. I mean, he slams into the ground, and, and the video is totally still. It's totally still. And then after about 30 seconds... There's movement, and the guy kind of starts looking around, and his eyes start getting bigger, and he's just like, yes, yes, I'm alive. And he says a lot of things that I can't repeat here, but he's so excited because he knows I was dead. I mean, there's not a lot of feeling that can compare with jumping out of a plane with a chute that's not opening, knowing you're dead. But then realizing, okay, I may have a few broken bones, but yes, I am alive. Right? And this is where we stood. This is where all of us were. We, we were jumping out of a plane. And we didn't even have a parachute to try to pull the ripcord. We had nothing. But what do we do in our culture? Our culture is so backwards. We say, you know what? Maybe you weren't really falling out of a plane. 
you know, maybe you are on a beach in Hawaii sipping a Mai Tai. Things are great. Why don't you just make reality whatever it is that you want it to be? You know, maybe you're on a boat. Maybe you're getting a suntan. Maybe the beavers just won a great game. But the Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible is real. It tells us the truth. And it says, reality is this. You were alienated from God, separated from him, and that was going to happen forever. But now we've been justified by faith and we have peace. This is good news. And it gets even better from here. It gets better. Verses 6 through 8 say, while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when you're trying to get your life on track. He says when you were a wreck, when you had no idea that you needed him, while you were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in knowing this truth, our lives should look different. They really should. We should be full of hope, full of excitement, full of joy, knowing where we're going. Our lives should function as an overflow of the cross with extreme, extreme excitement because we know where we have fallen from. And this leads to verses 3 through 5. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, we're told something here. We're actually made a promise. Jesus says, life is going to get hard. See, some of us, we have this kind of whack expectation that if I give my life to Jesus, then everything's going to be okay. And that, you know, I'm, my life's going to go well, things are going to be great for me, I'm going to get a nicer house, I'm going to drive a nice car. The truth of the Bible is it's the exact opposite. Jesus says, build your life on the rock. Right, Matthew 7. And he doesn't say build your life on the rock so that you can be above everyone and be protective and kind of look down and have a nice view. He says, build your life on the rock because what? What's coming? Storms are coming. And when that storm is gone, another storm is coming. And when that storm is gone, another storm is coming. Right? Life isn't easy. Right? People get cancer. Children die. Famine happens. Last week, um, my mom received a call from a really good family friend, uh, father, husband, father of four kids, 35 years old. He has cancer all over his whole body. All right, nothing they can do about it. And let me tell you this. There is not a single person in this room who is exempt from leaving service, from turning your cell phone off of silent, from pressing that number one, from listening to your voicemail, and in 15 seconds, having your world totally shattered. Now think about that. What would it take? It's a little different for each one of us. But life is fragile. It's very fragile. 15 seconds could change everything. But what's different about us, what's different about the Christian, is that when life's disappointments, when suffering happens, we can do what? We can put our hope in Christ, knowing that in the future, that all will be healed, that we will 
that um, pain will be ended. And he doesn't say it's going to be easy. You know, sometimes through the deepest possible pain, all you can say is, God, you're enough. God, you are enough. I can't do this on my own. You will carry me. You will sustain me. But I have my hope in you, and you never fail me. You never have, you never will. And I find eternal joy in this. So why do we celebrate this morning? Why do we have hope despite of life's storms and disappointments? One, because we know where we came from. Alienated from God. Eternal separation for having broken his perfect order. Punishment due. Number two, we know what Jesus did for us. Right? Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Number three, we know the result of Christ's death. The atonement and propitiation for our sins. We now have peace because of what he did for us. And number four, we can live in hope. The unwavering expectation of Christ's return in our lives. This is hope. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now earlier I gave you a simple definition of the term gospel. I said it's the good news of Jesus Christ and it's God's salvation plan for us all. And that is a good definition, but there's a lot more that needs to be unpacked for us to really understand the full significance of Jesus' hope for us. There are six steps, and I get this from John Piper's, uh, he, has, he writes an article on the Gospel Coalition. The first step is this, talking about the gospel. He says that the gospel is a plan from eternity. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died according to the scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures. This wasn't an accident. right? Christmas did not happen on accident. Easter did not happen on accident. God didn't look down on humanity and in a state of confusion say, gee, what am I going to do? Look at these people running around. No, very opposite. We see passages like Isaiah 53 and very beautifully pointing to a Jesus, to, to a Savior who is coming to rescue all of us who put our faith in him. So the gospel is a plan, very importantly. Number two, the gospel is an event. This is something that actually happened in history. Jesus died. He was crucified. He rose again. This was an historical event. So the gospel was God's plan. It was an event. And third, it was an achievement. Through the planned death of Christ and his resurrection, something was achieved. Right? There was an achievement. Our sins were paid for. Remember, we were all sinners, alienated from God, separated from him. But because of the gospel, because of Christ's righteousness, now we are free. Number four, this is beautiful. The gospel is an offer to the world that is free. It's a free offer to the world. There's nothing that you can do to earn the gospel. And, and some of us kind of hoard it. You know, we're kind of afraid to tell other people about it. And it's good news to us, but maybe someone else wouldn't want to hear it because maybe it's kind of offending and, and culturally it's not okay. And, and in Oregon, there aren't many Christians anyway, so they, they've probably heard it. But you got it for free. The gospel is an offer for everyone. And it's free, right? I now have a right standing, and I've been given this for free. 
Number three is the application of the achievement. Right? The gospel achieves something, and now in our lives, it's applied. In each one of us, this is applied. If you put your faith in Christ, you have a right standing. You are now saved. Currently, I have been made righteous. And I can stand firm knowing that Jesus has paid the price for me. And see, up to this point in the message, this is where our hope has come from. Because we've known that, okay, I was going here. Now I'm here. That is good news. Jesus died for me. He paid for my sin. I am righteous. I am no longer um, a slave to sin. And, the, and these things are true. This is good news. However, the gospel cannot stop here. It can't. We have to go a step further. And unfortunately, I fear that many of us do stop here. We stop at the point that says, okay, I'm okay now. Right? My life was, in a, was a wreck, but now I'm okay and things are pretty good. And it, it, it becomes about us. But the gospel can't stop here. It's got to go further. Our last step is, is the most important step. And I have a fear that many of us are missing this. I missed this for many years in my Christian life. Number six is the gospel brings us to God. It brings us to him. He is our treasure. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. So God is our treasure. He is our end. Right? My going to heaven, my righteousness... My justification, these are all means. These are all means to an end. Because I am righteous, because I am free, now I can have God. Some of us stop there. Okay, I'm righteous, I'm free, that's good. But we don't take that next step. We don't take that step that says God is my treasure. He is enough. He is all satisfying. And I can have him. And that's where we need to be. We need to make that step. Right, some of us think that Christianity is simply an escape from instead of an escape to. It's not an escape from, primarily. Primarily, it is an escape to because we couldn't have him before, but now we can. It's about him. It's about his glory, and it's about him being in us. Verse 5 says that we have the Holy Spirit in us now, that God is our treasure so this morning as you leave, I want you to think and reflect upon the gospel and the hope that we have. And I want you to think about this. Our freedom and our righteousness are gifts. And they are wonderful gifts. But do not elevate these gifts above the giver. Hold on to the truth that because I am free, I have Christ. Because I am free, I get the gospel. And that is our joy. That is our real hope. Our real hope is that we have God in us. Own that. Own that this morning. So let us move forward in hope, rejoicing and knowing that we can have peace with God and that more importantly, we can have God as our treasure by freely putting our faith in Him. What good news. 
So on this January 2nd, as, as we're kind of on a low, let's bring that low up. Because we have hope that I knew where I came from. I was falling from a plane without a parachute, and the ground was coming. I had nothing. Bam. Jesus came. I have life. I have joy. I have peace. This is good news. This is the gospel that we have received. So let us go. Let's share it freely. Don't hoard that. What good news the gospel brings. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have knowing that, that we were dead. Lord, let us not stop at receiving. Let us not stop at receiving righteousness, receiving freedom, receiving justification. And let us go to, let us run towards you. Let us grab onto you. Let's hold you as our treasure. Lord, without you in our life, we have nothing. We have nothing, but with you, we have everything. We have the hope of an eternal glory with you. Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross. I thank you for Christmas, and I thank you for Easter. Jesus, bless us this year as we, as we set foot towards eternal hope with you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.